Hello. I've had the great pleasure to be Kate's editor on her last two books. But her first, The Queen of Whale Kay, was published in 1998. And um, I think Kate has been remarkable as a nonfiction writer to have um, immediately become a bestseller with her first book. It's very rare. And she has, in fact, had now three books that have been on the bestseller lists, which is an extraordinary achievement. And her first um, won the Somerset Maugham Award. Then her second, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, or The Murder at Roadhill House. I love the subtitle to that. <laughs> um, won the Samuel Johnson Prize and was a Rich and Judy pick and was the Galaxy Book of the Year and sold the most astonishing number of copies, 600,000, which is just amazing. It's the sort of number that you would expect a kind of Ken Follett to sell, but not a work of... Uh, literary scholarship as well as marvellous writing. And then uh, it was our enormous pleasure to publish the new book, Mrs. Robinson's Disgrace, this year. And it went immediately to number two in the bestseller list and has had the most astonishing press coverage. So um, I think that, that Kate is without doubt one of the most interesting people who are writing in that area which we call narrative non-fiction. And all of her books come out of stories that have interested her and that have in turn fascinated us. So I hope that we'll talk about not just this new book but also where her imagination and her scholarship comes from. So Kate's going to talk a little bit, read a bit from the book because I think it's always so interesting to hear a writer read in their own voice from the work that they've created in such solitude and then we will talk a little bit, but mainly I think most of you have read the book and we'd love to know what you want to know from her. So we'll go out to questions very quickly. So Kate. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I will talk a little bit about how I came across a story for this book and decided to write it. Um, I was researching the suspicions of Mr. Witcher at the time and I managed to shoehorn into that book one way or another many of the odd little stories and puzzles that I came across in my reading and research. But this was one I, I couldn't because the subject was quite different even though it was a story based in the same class and time as Mr. Witcher. Um, when I finished Mr. Witcher, I, I sort of kept coming back to this story in my mind, wondering if it could make a book, and kept telling myself it couldn't. There wasn't enough information. There wasn't enough to bring it to life. But um, eventually, I went, returned to it sort of imaginatively one time, <laughs> too many to leave it alone, and I decided to have a go and to try and find what I could. Um, the, the story, in essence, is, well, as I first came across it, um, in a book I read about Victorian crime and popular fiction was a sensational divorce case, one of the first divorce cases in Victorian England. And it was the main evidence in the case was a diary. So the husband, Henry Robinson, was suing for divorce on the grounds of adultery, and his evidence was his wife's diary. His wife, Isabella Robinson, resisted the suit, and her evidence, too, was her diary, which she claimed, far from showing that she was an adulteress, was evidence that she was an erotomaniac, that she was insane and had sexual hallucinations, which she had recorded there. So, in a way, it was a story about the nature of historical sources and about writing um, that is that is produced for oneself, that is not produced for a public, and whether we can trust that, um, how we can evaluate something. So it goes to the heart, really, of a lot of the problems and also the thrills of researching non-fiction. Um, every, every document, every account is partial, biased, designed to further a particular protagonist's point of view. And this was really dramatised in the case of this divorce trial and in the case of this document. The diary, which has been destroyed and, as, as far as I know, no longer available, but which I was able to uh, reconstruct from several thousands of words that were reproduced in the press. And the diary's story begins in 
1850, when Isabella Robinson was a very bored, um, restless, unhappy woman of 37 living in Edinburgh, who, whose husband, Henry, who she considered very narrow and harsh, was away from home on business very much. And she fell in love with a doctor or medical student, 10 years her junior, who she met in the Edinburgh New Town that autumn. And the diary goes on to record all her hopes, her fears, her dreams, her fantasies of this young man called Edward Lane. And eventually, in 1854, it apparently records the consummation of her desires in the grounds of a hydrotherapy spa that Dr. Lane was running by now in the south of England, in Surrey. Uh, the affair between them, as the diary has it, uh, continued for the next year or so. And a few months after that, Isabella fell into a delirious fever in her rented house in Boulogne, and muttering the names of other men, Edward Lane presumably among them, and her husband, overhearing this, went to her writing desk, took out the diary, and read it. And that is the sort of disaster with which the, on which the book hinges and which ends the first half of the book, because once he read it and discovered of her apparent adultery and her obvious loathing for him, he decided to confiscate the diary, to take their two sons away from her, and to sue for divorce as soon as the new law was passed in England. Um, the whole gist of the trial was to decide whether the diary was factual or fictional. And that question involved some of the most bizarre and fascinating ideas about female sexuality, about madness, about the rights of husbands, um, about the nature of diary writing, which had recently become a, a huge fashion in, among middle-class, literate, often idle Victorian women. Um, the, so I'll read a passage that um, played an important part in the court case, which comes uh, three days after Isabella Robinson first recorded the apparent committing of adultery with Edward Lane. Um, their first encounter which she reported was in a woodland glade in the grounds of Moore Park in Surrey, his hydrotherapy spa. Um, but then they met again in his study, and then again on the day that she was due to leave Moore Park, and it's um, that third encounter which is reported here. Two days later, on Wednesday, 10th of October, 1854, Edward Lane's 31st birthday, Isabella was due to depart. She and Edward walked around the grounds. The doctor stopped to talk to another patient and then joined Isabella and her eldest son near the bounding fence. They set out for the wood, she wrote, taking the usual circuit, walking through paths that I had never seen before of the greatest beauty, reaching the outer pine wood and finally returning by Swift's cottage and lower walk. The building known as Swift's Cottage was the former home of Jonathan Swift's in Amarata Esther, which lay on the main path between Moore Park and Waverley Abbey. By 1854, the cottage was surrounded by rose trees and covered with moss, clematis and Virginia creeper. A sign outside read, Ginger Beer for Sale. We talked with the utmost confidence, but somewhat more calmly, wrote Isabella. I entreated him to believe that since my marriage I had never before once in the smallest degree transgressed. He consoled me for what I had done now and conjured me to forgive myself. He said he had always liked me and had thought with pity of my being thrown away as my husband was evidently unsuited to me and was, as he could plainly see, violent-tempered and unamiable. Edward reminded Isabella of the vulnerability of his own position. We spoke of his early age, 31, the sweet, unsuspicious character of his wife, rather than pain whom he would cut off his right hand. They were moving on to the subject of Isabella's unhappiness, my often bitter misery and wish for death, 
when Lady Drysdale and Mary Lane appeared. They had come to ask Isabella if she wanted them to book a fly to take her to the railway station. The doctor's wife and mother-in-law were as warm and trusting as ever. They kindly received my determination to go away about seven and went off again without one cold or displeased look. And yet we were walking arm in arm through those lonely woods and talking how earnestly. At seven o'clock that evening, Isabella set out with Edward for Ash Station in a covered cab drawn by a single horse. She and Edward sat inside the narrow carriage and Alfred, her eldest son, perched with the driver on top. Her younger boys were not with them. They may have gone ahead with their nurse. I never spent so blessed an hour as the one that followed, wrote Isabella, full of such bliss that I could willingly have died not to wake out of it again. I shall not relate all that passed. Suffice it to say, I leaned back at last in silent joy in those arms I had so often dreamed of and kissed the curls and smooth face so radiant with beauty that had dazzled my outward and inward vision since the first interview, November 15, 1850. Edward seemed, as he kissed her, to melt into a dazzle of soft curls and skin, the flesh and blood man merging with the idol of her dreams. Between kisses, they confided in one another. All former times were adverted to and explained, Isabella wrote. Edward told her that he had hidden his true feelings from prudential motives and that the suppression had caused him much pain. Isabella reminded him of some lines from the French novel Paul and Virginia that she had read out to the guests at Moor Park and confessed to having chosen them as a message to him. Edward had always known I had liked him, wrote Isabella, but not the full extent of the feeling and owned it had never been indelicately expressed. This relieved me. Heaven itself could not be more blessed than those moments. While life itself shall endure, their remembrance shall not pass away from a memory charged with much suffering and little bliss. How gentle, how gentlemanly he was. How little selfish. Though Isabella painted a romantic, tender scene, the setting was distinctly louche. The late 18th century guide to prostitution Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies, recommended coaches for illicit trysts. The undulating motion of the coach, with the pretty little occasional jolts, contribute greatly to enhance the pleasure of the critical moment, if all matters are rightly placed. By 1838, reported the Crim Con Gazette, the London Hackney Cab Commissioners were so disturbed by the immorality conducted in their vehicles that they proposed to curtail both the pleasure and the privacy by banning coach blinds and coach cushions altogether. Mm. Isabella's conduct in the co coach was especially shameless. A child, her son, was sitting on the roof while she and Edward Lane whispered and touched inside. As Isabella sat demurely writing up these scenes in her diary, perhaps in plain view of her children or her husband, none could guess at the images swarming through her head and the journal's pages. By recording her encounters in her secret book, she recreated the thrill of transgression, of pleasures sharpened by the danger of discovery. Thank That's you it. very much. It's wonderful. Um, one of the things I'm very struck by, actually listening to it in particular, but, but reading it, is uh, there are so many literary resonances in the book. And for me, I think, I think back to Jane Austen and I think of Northanger Abbey and the dangers of women reading and reading novels and then the sensation novelists and um, it's the fact that, that writing also is a thing that women do in secret, did in secret. And of course, Jane Austen used to write um, you know, at her living room table and put it aside when people walked in. So there's something there that I think is incredibly interesting, which is women's secret erotic lives and their secret writing lives. Mm. Um, and in this book, of course, Madame Bovary is very much present. So would you maybe talk a little bit about how yeah. you see the two together? I think, I mean, the, the subject of <clears throat> the dangers of women reading certain books being corrupted by what they read is very present in this story. 
Um, it was assumed that Isabella herself had had her imagination inflamed by sentimental fiction and that this was what coloured the diary and made it untrustworthy and distorted because the language in which she wrote was borrowed from, from these novels um, and, as it was argued in court, more than from her own experience. And when the press reported and transcribed her diary entries, that too was seen as extremely dangerous. Um, the Observer refused to reprint any of the diary entries that Isabella had written on the grounds that it would corrupt its, they could corrupt its readers, uh, give them ideas, and it referred particularly to the young and to women who might be damaged by this. And the courtroom was cleared of women at certain points in the proceedings. <laughs> so it's a sort of undercurrent throughout, and the, but the fact of diary writing takes it a step further, because here it's not only women sort of soaking up an influence which might corrupt or uh, give, give them fantasies that would be dangerous, but also producing their own fantasies, which could in turn serve to excite them or to betray in their imaginations their husbands and children. Um, and there was the great anxiety I detected around women, particularly middle-class wives, writing diaries in the early 19th century. I was surprised to find that Pepys's diary was only, the first time it was published was in 1818, I think, 1818 or 25. Um, and so it was the, the whole business of reading diaries and being excited by the intimate access they gave to other people's thoughts and lives was, was new and took off massively so that lots of real diaries were published in the first few decades of the 19th century but also many novels were published that took the form of diaries it was a particularly sort of thrilling shape in that it did give the the promise of intimacy of secrets of things that couldn't be said out loud and in the middle of the century there started to be a little spate of plays called things like My Wife's Diary, in which her <laughs> husband would read his wife's diary. Punch had a fairly long-running serial also called My Wife's Diary, which was full of nonsense. It was a sort of satire, but an anxious satire, I think, about what secrets women could be keeping, whether they be the silliest secrets, like how she was hiding her husband's brandy or taking a little bit of money out of his wallet to buy herself a pretty frock or much darker secrets like her loathing of her husband and her marriage and her longing for another man and the tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte which was published a few years before Isabella well a couple of years only before Isabella began her diary um, had just such a scene where a, a really dissolute unfaithful husband uh, pulls his wife's diary from her and reads it and discovers in it that she is plotting to leave him and take their son and he uses the diary against her to thwart her plans in much the same way Henry exactly. Robinson did yeah. Isabella. Because one of the things about Henry Robinson is that he had a mistress and children by the mistress. Yes. And that was considered absolutely fine yes. by Victorian England. And it didn't even, it wasn't even mentioned, I discovered this about his mistress and children when I came, uh, when I found an archive of letters that had been privately exchanged between the Robinsons, the Lanes and a friend of theirs in Edinburgh. Uh, but it was not mentioned in the trial um, because it had no legal relevance. A man's adultery was not grounds for divorce or a defence against the, the woman's adultery. Um, and so it was, it was just something that was known among his friends but not considered significant. Although, this is one of the, the contradictory things that kept, keep fascinating me about the, this, these people, this period. Isabella didn't think it was all right. So not everyone, you know, it wasn't as if there was some blanket acceptance is fine for a man to have a mistress. It was legally not um, as problematic as a woman having an affair. 
but there were ways of thinking available then which did hold that this was not just, um, not fair, and Isabella Robinson was among those who um, did adopt sort of very sort of radical or progressive positions, including the belief that her writing was her own and that her husband shouldn't have access to her thoughts and her diary and that he had committed a, a, a violation of her privacy and her independence by taking it. And also she thought that her desires, and she acknowledged she had strong sexual desires, were as legitimate and had as much need of expression and fulfillment as his, and that it was unfair <laughs> that he could have a mistress, um, and yet she should have her life in ruins because of a short dalliance. Mm. And he had access to her bank account as well, didn't he? She used to write checks for him. Yes. She had some independent money. Yes, yeah, she had uh, money settled on her by her father. This was one of the sort of disparities between them that makes you sometimes sympathise a little with Henry Robinson is that there was a class difference. She came from a superior class to, to him and um, she had private money, whereas he earned, he was in trade. He built sugar mills and steamships and uh, was an entrepreneur, less educated than her. Uh, but when they married, his, um, one of his first acts was to suggest to her that she sign all the checks in her checkbook, which um, was a, she had a private account which by law could not be transferred to him. So instead he asked that she sign all the checks and he would then have um, complete control and access to her funds, to which she agreed. And, um, and so... But she, over the years, the first few years of their marriage, gradually became more angry and, and bitter about this arrangement, about his other um, attempts to get hold of her money and her eldest sons. Her eldest son was not Henry's son, but a son from a previous marriage to a man who had uh, gone mad and died <laughs> within two years. So she, was, she was not happy in her choice of partners. Uh, so she, um, she became re resentful. I, it, she was a very, uh, this is a kind of love about a very contradictory creature in that she had a great sort of rebellious, free-thinking streak and a sense of entitlement, ambition and independence. But she was also very eager to be liked, to conform and she berated herself repeatedly in the diary for being such a bad wife, such a bad mother, for having these wild feelings and unruly passions that she couldn't control. And so she's, on the one hand, asserting her right to independence and freedom, and on the other, castigating herself for her failure to be a proper, um, dutiful wife. So the issue over the money is a, an example of that. She readily handed over control of her money to Henry and probably at the time felt it was the right and dutiful and uh, trusting thing to do and then came to regret it. Mm. As with so much. <laughs> um, are there any questions? Could you mm. say about your sources? Where did you, where did you find the material for that? Yes, um, the original source was uh, sources were sort of newspapers. The, the, the trial was reported very fully, and the diary extracts the observer apart. Yeah, I mean, what year? Eighteen fifty-eight, which was the first year um, of the new divorce law. So it was one of the very first cases heard before the civil court that could grant divorces. Um, so it, excite, it would excite, have excited a fair amount of attention anyway because of the precedent that these cases were setting. Uh, but the material being so sensational and taking the form of a woman writing about her sexual desires made it all the more uh, magnetic <laughs> to the newspapers. Um, so that was the first source. Then there were uh, transcripts. There were um, documents in the National Archives relating to not only to this trial, but to subsequent wranglings between Henry and Isabella, which uh, in a divorce file, which were invaluable in giving me some really dry but uh, Im important information about um, 
things like addresses, money, dates, which then let me, it made it possible to explore other things, local archives, um, genealogical, normal genealogical sources and so on. But the real um, breakthrough for me was to discover that there was an archive in the National Library of Scotland which um, contained the letters between a man called George Coombe, who was the pioneer of phrenology in Britain, phrenology being the science of reading people's, or pseudoscience, as we later thought of it, <laughs> reading people's characters by feeling the bumps on their skulls. And he was a great, um, a famous man at the time, and a mentor to George Eliot, as well as to Isabella Robinson. And as the case was coming to trial, or there were decisions being made about whether they would come to trial, Isabella, her husband Henry, her purported lover Edward, and Edward Lane's mother-in-law, Lady Drysdale, all wrote to George Coombe with their versions of the story and their accounts of what had happened. He was a kind, treated as a kind of guru or private judge, the leader of their circle, which included a lot of very uh, radical thinkers and intellectuals. And um, George, Co these letters have survived. He kept them, not least because he died towards the end of 1858 while the trial was still not finished. So if he had intended to destroy them, that, that moment never came. But also preserved are his copybook in which his own replies to them are there. So both sides of this conversation. And that, um, if you think of the diary as something very subjective and private and that was meant to be private, and the court case as something extremely public and sort of stylized and presented for uh, the way that this argument was presented for public consumption. These letters were the middle ground. They were where the difference between the diary and the court was negotiated and the decisions were made, taken about how everyone was going to present their stories and how much they were prepared to give. Um, so and it, it, it reveals a fascinating amount of pulling of strings and um, wrangling behind the scenes, especially as regards the George Coombe and his friends and various newspaper editors and doctors and influential people in the establishment. Because even though this circle was, say, a progressive, very liberal and open to new ideas, they're also very well connected. And, um, as, and, and they were able to... Uh, engineer things in certain ways. Okay. It's rather modern, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, I just had a question about um, when you were writing, did you find it difficult not to draw conclusions or to judge or to criticize her and her life and the decisions that she made? Specifically, when it comes to the checkbook and signing over the checks, did you judge her for that? Did you find it difficult to remove yourself from writing about her as opposed to understanding her? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, and it is something I wrestled with in all sorts of ways, including what maybe what you're suggesting, the distance between then and now, and importing kind of modern um, kind of judgments and assumptions into th thinking about her. Um, but I also, you know, there were, there were many things which I judged her uh, and could sort of dislike her for certain things. Sometimes I was bewildered by her professed love for her sons and the danger in which she was putting them. Did your judgments change over time? Yes. Okay. Um, and her, her attitude towards Mary Lane, the wife of Edward Lane, struck me as a little bit queasy-making. She was very patronizing towards her. I think in the extract I read the sweet, suspic unsuspicious little Mrs. Lane. <laughs> um, and she seemed to take a certain kind of glee in um, cavorting with Mrs. Lane's husband behind her back, even though Mary Lane had shown her nothing but kindness. There were things of that nature, and um, things that were less people are kind of not less moral issues than just she could come across as a bit irritating and self-indulgent. Uh, though a lot of that I I was prepared to forgive because. I've kept a diary myself. <laughs> I know how um, irritating and self-indulgent a diary will <laughs> encourage one to be. Um, so we had to, you know, 
And, and yet, you ask it, I changed my mind. As time went on and as I wrote the um, story as much as I could from her position, especially in the first half following the diary, which was a d decision I came to late, late in the writing, um, I was just so struck by the plight in which she, she, was, she found herself. The conditions were of, in, of the entrapment. Um, however common it was, it didn't make it less compelling psychologically as a real sort of nightmare that she was in. And, um, and her lack of power, her lack of agency, commanded a lot of sympathy. I also really liked her for being so frank and for being so uh, sort of modern, really, and not very Victorian in a stereotypical way, in being so critical of herself, um, frank about her desires, and sometimes just sort of unbuttoned in her you know, <laughs> fantasies and, and behavior. Uh, so I th you'd think she was pretty remarkable and um, very multifaceted person. Um, and I think the question I had asked myself is, apart from sympathizing with her, which I did very strongly, increasingly so, would I have liked her? And I think so. Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, Kate, what was the public fascination with the, the trial of uh, Mrs. Robinson in 1858 tell us about Somebody actually at an, an event I, I did in Edinburgh asked me, said that they'd just tried to read Fifty Shades of Grey and they'd put it down in disgust, not, not, not moral disgust, but at the a sort of um, feminist disgust. Is this what people like Isabella Robinson fought for, you know? That, um, that we should have this story of, um, of kind of ma male domination and female submission and so on. But I, I said, you know, sort of take the point, but, but yes, it is. You know, she was, she did write down her sexual fantasies or her elaborations, her, her sort of wishful elaborations on an affair that she had. Um, and the big shock at the time uh, that the newspapers kept repeating, it wasn't that she'd had an affair, it was that she'd written about it. Mm. And that that was the thing. It wasn't only disgraceful, it was cited as evidence of insanity. So it became a circular argument that the fact that she'd written about this affair, such a reckless thing to do, was so reckless that it, um, it, it invalidated any reliability in the diary and, uh, and meant that the affair could not be trusted to have happened. Um, so I think the, this, this is a story as much about women writing about forbidden subjects and, um, and now an equivalent forbidden subject because of the age we live in might be something about a woman thrilling to the idea of submission. Um, and, and, of course, you know, I do think there is a parallel between the middle-class ladies of England, who I, I'm, I'm sure were avidly reading the diary extracts at their breakfast tables um, in 1858, as the trial was reported in the Times and the Telegraph and, and all these places, um, and the sort of way in which the huge success of Fifty Shades of Grey means that it's kind of legitimized it for everyone. So it's something to that people can, women can be not ashamed of reading. Um, and so I think there are, mm. there are parallels between, mm. between those moments. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's, it's very interesting as the, the novel that people know about because there was the film called The Shake starring Rudolf Valentino in the 1920s. But the author of that, um, wrote the novel while her husband was in the trenches of the First World War. And the novel is uh, a sexual fantasy of a young, blonde Englishwoman on a, on a horse in the desert being kidnapped by an Arab sheikh and being taken back to his quarters 
and basically being raped day after day, <laughs> hour after hour, and then falling, finding that she likes it and falls in mm -hmm. love with him. And what is extraordinary about that novel is that at the end of it, um, you know, they have a romance, and it's all right because actually he's not Arab, he's French. So <laughs> it sort of has everything in it, that book. And so I think that, you know, if you were to... I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff to be thought about, about what women's sexual fantasies are, where they come from, and, and mm. Mrs. Robinson is very much in mm. this tradition that's ended up with Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, although she... You know, that it is a, it's a kind of mirror image in a way in terms of what her fantasies were because her, she yearned for this man, Edward Lane, who was 10 years younger than her, who was sensitive, literary, like talking about science and poetry, was, um, and treated her with great tenderness and respect as opposed to her husband, the domineering macho, mm, mm, <laughs> and, mm. and it wasn't just Edward Lane who she fancied, but all sorts of younger and intellectual men. So she liked the sort of, uh, sort of winsome, poetic types who paid her attention and had time to talk to women, so in, <coughs> and, and who were typically younger than her, but who could teach her because they were better educated than her. Mm. They were often... Um, she, she fell for two of her son's tutors, one a French tutor, one an English tutor. So they were often figures in that mould. So in a way, it's a very different fantasy. Very different, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a question at the back. <laughs> Not as far as I know, <laughs> but I didn't, um, I didn't know for a while that I was going to do Mrs. Robinson having done Mr. Witcher. I sort of actively told myself I should um, go to a different time and place, you know, that, and it was, um, but, but in the end, uh, I really want to write about stories that I find compelling. And I found that story compelling, so I found myself back in 1850s, <laughs> respectable England. Um, and so maybe there is something. I mean, there are, there are a few things that came out of it that, um, that I, I could go back to. And it does. And while I'm researching a book, I always am distracted by other stories and wonder how much space to give them, whether I need to let them go or whether I can squeeze them in. You know, there are, there are so many out there once you start digging about in newspapers and old letters and so on. And that's one of the most important judgments to make is how much room to give the other stories. And um, so, so, yeah, I don't know what my next book will be yet. But, and your, uh, your first came out of being obituaries editor on Telegraph yes. and reading an obituary. Yeah. I'd, well, writing an obituary, actually, yes. Yeah. So it fell to me to write this obituary of a woman who was a cross-dressing motorboat racer who no one on the desk <laughs> or the newspaper had ever heard of. Um, she died age 93, which was part of the reason. And she'd... Um, She'd left England in the 1930s, having been the fastest female motorboat racer in the world. But she said she was fed up with England, um, and she bought an island. She was an heiress, half American, oil heiress. She bought an island in the Bahamas, and she ruled it like a despot, making up all sorts of <laughs> arbitrary laws, and um, having her girlfriends to stay in the great house while making while ejecting black people from the island if they committed adultery. So she was, she was a kind of... And she, her main love was a... Which I didn't know when I wrote the obituary, but I found out soon enough, was a little leather doll a foot high called Lord Todd Wadley, for whom she had um, clothes made in Savile Row, um, stationery. He had his own bank account at Coots with his own miniature checkbook. <laughs> And so he became, in a way, the central figure in the story. <laughs> yeah. So that was... Um, and so it felt as if, you know, that was a story I kind of... that came to me, I bumped into, and then I couldn't resist um, writing it. And I think always, the thing that... Um, 
I can't read it. It's very difficult as, uh, for, for me to know what the stories have in common. I can see some things, sometimes the thing about the difference between a public and a private self. And, but, um, but one thing is that they, they always have, there's at least a scene in them which for me feels as if it's come from a novel, like I half mm. remember it. It echoes, and I, so in, um, in Mrs. Robinson's Disgraces is probably the scene where Henry reads his wife's diary. I feel like it's, it sort of, it feels as if it's from a novel. And as it turned out, it, it, it is from The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which I've, I've never read till I researched this book, also a little bit from The Woman in White, but it's something kind of hyper-real there, something that feels like a fable or something that has a wider um, resonance for the culture in which it finds itself. And, um, and that's certainly true with Mr. Witcher, where it was the scene of the 12, with the people in the house and the detective coming in and knowing that someone within the house had committed a crime and needing to work out who it was. Um, and, well, <laughs> Joe Carstairs, the subject of my first book, her whole life was utterly <laughs> un unreal and fabulous, fabulous. You know? And, so. of course, one of the joys of reading Kate's books is it is like reading a novel, and yet every word of it is true. And, you know, that's a very remarkable thing, I think. Um, yes. Hi, I was wondering uh, if your own opinion changed uh, about the diary's content throughout your research, about whether it's Yeah, I, I sort of did, um, my, my view of it did change, sort of going back and forth rather than undergoing a transformation. I think I started out with the strong feeling that it was basically true. And I was bewildered and fascinated by the fact that the court, the lawyers, the press commentators in particular, had argued so vehemently that it was obviously insane and delusional. And I thought, did they think that? You know, did they? <laughs> Are they that different from me? Um, is their time that different from ours? Am I missing something, or are they pretending something? And that's a kind of the, quest, the sort of question that, that you begin with that makes you want to find, really find out. Um, and I, as I went on, I kind of looked at it more from the point of view of the, the, the time and the thinking of the time and also the letters, some of the letters that Edward Lane wrote and that people were so persuasive and convincing that I did seriously entertain the idea that, if not insane, the diary was unreliable in, in, a, in a quite serious, you know, significant way um, and that it was, of course, you know, I knew it was informed by fantasy as well as fact. You know, that was clear. But in the end, I returned to my first instinct, which is that it was elaborated but essentially true, and um, that the the, the story lies in how she came to denounce it and deny it, uh, why she did that, um, and that that was. For me, the mystery in the end was not, was it real, was it true or false, but why did she say it was false, given that as far as everything was telling me, it was true. And that I discovered, even though it went down in history, as it were, things that were written about the case afterwards said, oh, the conclusion of the trial was that Mrs. Robinson was insane and the diary was invented. In fact, that, as I discovered, isn't what happened at all. That's not what the judges said. And the will to believe that was so strong that it, um, in defiance of the verdict, that was, that was what was given out as the conclusion. And, and I, I thought it was very interesting that, that actually the, her doing that thing of saying it was, it was insanity, it was sexual fantasy, was an, actually an incredibly courageous thing for her to do. Mm. She, she, I think, emerges in a way as a kind of heroine, which at the beginning she is this faintly irritating, you know, often rather out-of-control mm. woman, but, but, but in the end she, it was as if she took her life into her own hands yes. and made a big decision. Yes, and to the, that's to the question of, um, of what I felt about her and whether my views of her changed, 
that is absolutely central to it, that when I found these letters that had been exchanged in Edinburgh, um, I, as I interpret and understand them, she made a decision to sacrifice herself even further. I mean, she'd lost nearly everything. She'd lost her children. She'd lost her good name, as it was. But she, to have her name absolutely ruined in the national press over and to be denounced as an insane fantasist. Um, but she did that. She sacrificed herself for Edward Lane um, and for his family, who had done her good, you know, who had been very generous to her at the unhappiest points in her life. So I do see it, see it as a kind of a moment of facing the worst, facing the consequences of what she'd done, which although I don't think writing the diary was a crime, it was, it was reckless towards other people, her own children and the doctor and his family among them. Um, and to, to, you know, I see it as something noble she did in the end. And, um, and then to survive, to do that, to survive it and carry on, I see as quite mm. courageous too. Mm. 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 Uh, do you think Isabella was an extremely unusual Victorian woman, or do you think that she offers a glimpse into what might have been going on in Victorian England that we haven't really thought about before? Yeah, well, both, yes. I think she was unusual. I was startled by her... Um, the, the way that she thought about herself and the world she was in. Um, and yet it is tantalising because I'm, I have no doubt that if Henry Robinson hadn't taken her diary and showed it to the world, it would have been destroyed and we would never have seen it. It would have been burnt at her death or before. And, you know, countless diaries were burnt in the 19th century and I'm sure some of them were of this, <laughs> of this nature. Um, so it, there's a little feeling of sort of tip of the iceberg, but there was something unusual about her and the way she lived and the way she processed her experience that perhaps made this story happen. And maybe there, even that she wanted her words read, maybe not by Henry, but maybe by us. You know, there, there, was, there was something about the recklessness and the fact that this diary got read that feels half-wished for, only half-wished for, but, you know. So do you think that she would be happy to have this book? <laughs> well, I think it's a, a much more sympathetic reading of her diary than was available yes, at, exactly. in her time. Yeah. Um, so I hope so. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's another kind of illicit reading of something that wasn't meant to be for us, that yes. was meant to be private. And I was aware of that as I wrote it, about the sort of moral complexity of writing about these things that you shouldn't even have, you know. Mm. Um, but and she's become a heroine of her own story, I mean, yes, truly. Yes, she's is at the centre of, instead what? of the, uh, yeah. I think it, I, I hope it does turn it round a bit from the story that was reported at, at the time. And um, it, we're able to read the diary differently and think about it differently, and I think... Surely she would have been glad of that. Mm. Any other questions? Yes. I just wondered had, had you, uh, you were talking about, uh, you answered another lady about saying, had you read something in your current research? I wondered if you could be tempted to um, investigate Victorian women who um, chose another method of, of, of um, getting on, uh, getting rid, quite literally, of their husbands who they didn't get on with. I was thinking particularly, or lovers, of Madeleine Smith, who was much the same mm. period, or even Mrs. Maybrick. Yes. And how the attitude that, 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 that what you were saying about they, they settle women out of the court, but I understand that Mrs. Maybrick's trial, women of, of quite good station actually fought like tigers to stay in the court. <laughs> um, yeah. And saying, well, would, would that be something that tempt, would tempt you, or do you think you'd spent too much time in Victorian England? Well, I, I don't think I've spent too much time in Victorian England. I think it's sort of limitless. But, um, and, and I do know both those stories. There may be one, I can't remember the details now, but with Madeleine Smith I do. I, I guess the, you've got to feel that there's something fresh you're, you can tell, yeah. not just a fresh way of telling it. And with this, this book in particular, this story hadn't been told before, uh, not really, not at all. Um, not at length 
And so there was that sense of discovery and uh, unearthing things. With Mr. Witcher, the, the case was very well known, but my way into it through Witcher was something that needed a hell of a lot of, of work and digging, and that gave me a sense of uh, purchase on it. So um, the, the Madeline Smith and Florence Maybrick stories, they, you know, if, if I read, the, if I found a way in that felt as if it was a new story, um, but Madeline Smith is, um, is, is fascinating, very tempting. She's a woman who poisoned her lover in order to get rid of him when she um, wanted to marry her husband. Her father had fixed her up to marry a more suitable man, and she tired of her lover. And the, the thing that... Well, it was never proven that she um, poisoned him. It was, it was an open verdict. But there, too... It's about a woman, about writing and how to interpret, because at the centre of this trial were her letters to him and his to her, I think, um, and to interpret how, quite how sort of salacious, what codes they were using, what they meant um, in their exchange of words. And again, it was the interpretation of these very private and very intimate documents um, by these judges sitting there um, that everything turned on. And they're really great, some of the letters, and there are loads of them. And, of course, you get all sorts of incidental detail about how people lived and thought and felt and so on um, in much the same way as you do in a diary. So. Fascinating. <laughs> it's wonderful to have a book about it. <laughs> OK, I think um, we maybe have time for one more. And, um, Can you read Yes. I'd read it a long time before, and when I was researching this, um, there were certain scenes and themes and moods that reminded me of it, um, including that scene in the carriage, which reminded me of the scene where they, Emma Bovary has sex with a young clerk in a carriage bobbing around <laughs> Rouen. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I reread it, and I also checked when it was written, and Think, wondering if there was a sort of influence one way or the other. And um, to my surprise, but it was written in almost tandem with Isabella Robinson's diary. So Flaubert started writing Madame Bovary in about 1851. Um, Isabella had started her diary in 1849, and both of them finished in 1856. Isabella, when Henry read it and took it, and Flaubert, when he put it in the post to his publisher... So there was just a sort of weird synchronicity, um, and then both are stories of bored, restless, romantic, sexually hungry, um, provincial wives who want more than they've got. I think Emma Bovary, in some ways, as a character, is a slightly a sillier version of Isabella. Isabella's got great intellectual and literary aspirations. She doesn't mm. just want to read books. She wants to write. And she wants to talk about ideas, not, not just poetry, but science too. Um, but, the, but the kind of mood and the strange kind of amorality um, of, of these, these two women by the standards of their time and their sense of you know, ambition in these areas which shouldn't you know, be open to them and having affairs and having a romantic life um, was... was, was struck a chord with, with each other and I thought that was really interesting. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. They were great questions and thank you most yes, of all thanks. to Kate for sharing so much with us. Thanks. Thank, thank you, you very much. <laughs>